so we want to give that hope to others. And we're going to be talking about it today in our study. So open up your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2. If you're visiting with us, we go through the books of the Bible, chapter by chapter and verse by verse. And we've been in the New Testament book of Philippians. And Philippians is one of four letters that Paul wrote while he was in his first imprisonment in Rome that are part of the canon of scripture. The others being the book of Ephesians, the book of Colossians, and then that personal letter to Philemon. And as Paul's writing to the church of Philippi, a church he started on his second missionary journey 10 years prior to him writing this letter, that he is expressing to them a great affection that he had and appreciation for the believers there in Philippi. And he writes that he was thankful for them. Uh, he remembered them in his prayers and how he longed to see them. So as we go through this chapter here, we also know that he was concerned for them as well because there was a problem that had arised in the church. So before we get into our study, Father, we do come and we ask that you would just bless this time in the study of your word. I'm thankful that we're here. We can open up the written word of God. So help us to have, to remind us to turn our ringers off our phones. And we want to be one that, uh, Lord, that uh, we are attentive to the things that you're showing us and teaching us through your word. Lord, we ask that you would help us to apply these things, to have the mind of Christ. And in our Christian lives, to have humility and to be other-centered. And that doesn't come naturally. It doesn't come naturally for me. And I need you working in my life, and we all do, and in the life of this church. So, Lord, we just give this time to you in the study of your word. And, Lord, may we be attentive to what it is that we read. And, Lord, just be at all once again in what Jesus has done for us. In Jesus' name. Amen. So as Paul's writing to this church, again, expressing how it was his prayer that he would desire for them as this problem was arising of division that was taking place. There was conflict that was taking place. He says, I want you, your conduct to be worthy of the gospel of Christ, verse 27 of chapter 1. To stand fast in one spirit, one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. And we're going to see when we get specifically to chapter 4 that he will give us some insight of what was taking place. And as this dispute was in the church, it was having, of course, a negative effect on the church. And as we opened up chapter 2, reading the first four verses last week, he began to address that problem. This is how you can be of one mind, of one spirit, driving together for the gospel and the unity and harmony. In verse 3, let's read that again that we covered last week of chapter 2. That he says, this is how it's done. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. But in loneliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. And let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. And we talked about that in detail. I would encourage you, if you didn't listen to the study, to, to listen to it, to, to consider it. Because it's very important in the life of a believer, in the life of a, a church, a body of believers. And this is how you can have one mind, of one accord. Paul says... May my joy be complete, full, because you are doing this. You're working in this way in harmony, in unity. And it is not through selfish ambition. It is not through pride. It is not in conceit. Those are the enemies of unity. 
But unity comes through humility, and humility, lowliness of mind. Listen, that doesn't mean you're weak. It means you're Christ-like. It means that you are living in a way that is pleasing to the Lord. You are to consider others. You are to care for others. You want others to do well in the things of God. You want the body of Christ to come together so we can continue in the things of the kingdom and moving forward and giving the gospel. Let your conduct be worthy of the gospel because the gospel is something that we just don't believe. We live the gospel. It's real to us, isn't it? So you're no longer, you know, centered on yourself and living in selfishness and everything's, you know, about you. That's the world. We are to have the mind of Christ. And as Paul continues here on the subject of humility, given the ultimate example that we have that is our Lord Jesus Christ. Now listen, I think that verses 3 and 4, once again, I want to remind you, is very important for us to consider because a lot of problems when it comes to relationships and what happens with people in the church could be eliminated if we apply verses 3 and 4. And I know that some of you, you have relationships that are severed and that are strained, and it is very difficult because of the pain, because you've been hurt, because, you know, you, you've, there needs to be perhaps that separation for whatever reason. And I'm so sorry for your hurt. But there should be a desire that one day that there can be a restoring of that relationship. And it is something that, Lord, that you can do. And, Lord, I pray that I would be one, that, Lord, that this is applied in my life. Paul would write in Romans chapter 14, live peaceably with all men. And then he has a qualifier if possible. And I understand that sometimes it may not be possible or at this time. But as we apply these verses in our lives, I think that a lot of problems can be eliminated or at least there can be clarity and understanding that can come with individuals as they sit down and they really have an interest for one another, as we have lowliness of mind, as we consider others. So Paul here is he is writing, now he gives the ultimate example of our Lord as we continue in verse 5, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. As I mentioned last week, that Paul is not giving his opinion on unity and what defines humility. He is not saying that I think it's a good idea to have one mind and one spirit to be of one accord in the body of Christ, but rather Paul is showing us and telling us that this is the mind of Christ and that we're to have the same mind and and in the following verses, we have a powerful description of Jesus' deity and his incarnation. It's a very powerful section of scripture in the New Testament that proves, listen, that Jesus is God. He became a man, went to the cross for us, and as we proceed, we're going to look at it carefully. But I don't want us to forget this, that what is being told to us is that this is the mind of Christ. That he esteemed us. He considered us in our interests. He was humble. So this is the mind of Christ. Let this mind be in you. It's an attitude of humility. It's a heart of humility and a life of sacrifice. We do not as Christians go through life thinking everything centers around us. Of course not. We're to be other centered. We're to die to self. We don't go through life thinking that we're the center of the universe. You know, the center of the world and everything else revolves around me. But rather, we're to submit to the one who is the creator of the universe and of the world. 
And it is the creator of you. For you were created for his good pleasures. We are to have the mind of Christ. That should be our desire as a Christian. I don't want to have the, the mind of the world which says that might, might makes right. That, that you are to look out for yourself. You're number one. All this that you know to be true. So as we enter now into this most important section of scripture theologically in, that we have in almost all of the New Testament, it is very important. Let's not forget this. That what we are being told is this is the mind that we are to have, which is also in Christ Jesus. Who, verse 6, as we continue, being in the form of God, did not consider robbery to be equal with God. So this verse telling us that Jesus, listen, is God. Jesus did not begin his existence in the manger in Bethlehem. But Jesus is eternal. That's what it means when it tells us that he's the first and the last. He's the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end, which speaks of his eternal state. John, when he begins his gospel, he declares that in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, or tabernacled among us. Jesus is God in essence. He shows the very nature and attributes of God. In that upper room, right before Jesus went to the cross, that it was Philip that said to Jesus, show us the Father that it may suffice us. We're talking it's graduation night. They had been with Jesus for three years. They didn't understand everything that was going on, that he was going to go to the cross and die for them, even though he had been speaking to them about going to Jerusalem. I'm going to be handed over to the chief priests and elders, and I'm going to be put to death, but I'll rise again after three days. And here's Philip saying, show us the Father that it may suffice us. And Jesus said, oh, Philip, you've been with me all this time. And I think it was something that the other disciples perhaps were thinking. And a voice of disappointment of Jesus perhaps, oh, Philip, you've been with me. You guys have been with me for three years. You've seen the miracles. You've, you've heard me teach. You've heard the, the declarations of deity. The Father and I are one. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. If you want to know what God is like, then look at Jesus. And I think that's an important thing to remember as people are struggling about, maybe in the Old Testament, they see God the Father as a mean God and judgmental and, and looking to pour out his wrath on everybody. And then Jesus in the New Testament kind of running around, running inter interference for everyone, saying, oh, please don't hurt them. If you want to know what God is like, look at Jesus. If you want to know the nature and the attributes of God, look at Jesus. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father, Philip. And it was Jesus that said the Father and I are one. We know that Jesus is told of us in Colossians chapter 1, that he's the image of the invisible God, and by him all things were created. So he's the creator. And verse 6 of Philippians 2 tells us that he did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. He would say that I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the door, the door to heaven. He would make that declaration before Abraham was, I am, there in John's gospel as well. He wasn't lying. He wasn't exaggerating. He wasn't making it up. He wasn't striving to be like God, but he was God, fully God, fully man. He is Emmanuel. God with us. 
So we're being told that he did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. He wasn't trying to achieve equality with the Father. He had it. He had it. And I want us to be clear on that. Because there may be those who come and knock on your door. Or ride up to you on a bicycle wearing a white shirt and a black tie. And they'll use terms like the Son of God. Well, we believe Jesus is the Son of God, but the Jehovah Witnesses that he's Michael the Archangel. Oh, we believe Jesus is the Son of God, but he's the brother of Lucifer. You see, the doctrine, the official doctrine of the Mormons is that, that God the Father and God the Mother had billions of spirit children, and they populated the earth, and Jesus was the firstborn of the spirit children. Lucifer was his brother, and then when the plan of salvation came out, Lucifer didn't like it, so he fell and became Satan. That's their official doctrine. And in you, you can become a god. If you progress in heaven, if you get sealed for eternity in our temple, that's their doctrine, that's what they believe. They do not believe that Jesus is the creator, that he's created. They'll deny the deity of Jesus Christ. And there's all kinds of voices that will do that. We know that Jesus created all things. But he made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. You at Philippi, as Paul puts pen to parchment. There's a division that's going on among you. There's a dispute going on. There's selfish ambition and conceit and pride. You, you need to look at and, and understand Jesus' humility, his example, him being other-centered. He is God. He's the creator of the universe. This world is all that we've ever known. It's a fallen world. As I think about the 30 years that I've been in ministry, how Darker is getting, more confusing is getting, more evil that is getting. Paul said the last days would be perilous times. That, that we know that we're headed towards the return of the Lord as we see these things that are taking place all around us. But this is all I've ever known. And the older that you get, you realize this is indeed a fallen world. This is by no means a perfect world. I appreciate the blessings that the Lord has given to me. I appreciate the, the things that I can enjoy in life, but this is a fallen, dark world full of sin and disease, problems and difficulty. I don't know what it means to be in a place that is perfect. I'm looking forward to heaven. I think every Christian should look forward to heaven. But I don't know what it means to live in a perfect place where the glory of God is, where there is no sin. And Jesus, all-powerful, all-knowing, completely righteous, holy, pure, perfect, living in the glory of deity, think about it, would humble himself and found to be an appearance of a man. But not just any man, but the form of a bondservant. Even though he's the king of all kings, he wasn't born in the palaces of Rome. He was placed in a feeding trough in Bethlehem. The only crown that he would wear was the crown of thorns. He willingly made himself of no reputation. 
He said, I didn't come to be served, but be the servant of all, to lay down my life for the sheep. He was raised in Nazareth. He, he grew up in a carpenter shop. Isaiah, speaking of Jesus, writes that there is no beauty that we should desire him. Nazareth had a terrible reputation 2,000 years ago, a little village in the, in the hills of Galilee there. And as Jesus is there growing up, you can read how in chapter 1 of John's gospel, remember, that it was Philip that found Nathaniel and said, hey, come, and we found the Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth. And his response, Nathaniel, was, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? In John chapter 8, when Jesus is speaking about his witness, and he's disputing there with the Pharisees that are coming against him, the Pharisees, they decide they're going to get their dig in on Jesus. And they said, well, we weren't born out of fornication. The implication was, you were. Denying, of course, the, the virgin birth of Jesus. But I find that interesting that even over, you know, 30 years later, that here's the religious leaders saying, you were born of fornication, denying the virgin birth of, of Jesus. Of course, as Mary was told, that that which is conceived in you is of the Holy Spirit. It would be Jesus, the creator, that would turn to someone and say, foxes have holes and birds of the airs have nests. But the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He has nowhere to lay his head. That same word, lay his head, is used only one other time. In John's gospel, when he breathed his last, and he bowed his head. That's where he laid his head. When he died for you and for me. And not only did Jesus make himself of no reputation and lived as a servant, he would die as a servant to death on the cross. Sometimes, and it can happen with any of us, which is Jesus did for us on the cross and what he's provided for us can lose its impact on our hearts and in our lives over time. Yeah, I, I know Jesus died for my sins and he went to Calvary's cross and we get busy with life and sometimes we, we forget it to be thankful and at awe of the wondrous cross this great of salvation that we have. And Jesus, listen, did not have to esteem us. He didn't have to consider us or mankind. He did not have to consider you. You might be here thinking nobody considers me anyway. Nobody considers my needs. Nobody thinks about me. Well, Jesus did. He didn't have to become a man. He didn't have to, to, to leave heaven and, and come to this sinful world and live among us. But Jesus did humble himself, and he came willingly, and he came freely. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. He would come because he was interested in you. He delights in you, proved his love for you. His death wasn't accidental, but planned from eternity before the foundation of the world. 
Revelation chapter 13, verse 8, the land slain from the foundation of the world. Sometimes when we get to Holy Week, there's a lot of things that come out in, in secular writings and on the news. And this person, you know, uh, this story that they'll do of somebody who perhaps is trying to find the body of Jesus in Jerusalem, which is a waste of time because the tomb is empty. Or they say that Jesus, you know, kind of the teaching is that fell in unfortunate circumstances. No. Before the world was even formed, that it was determined he would die for you. He set his love on you. And he would go to the cross and crucifixion, where we get the English word excruciating. It was an excruciating, horrible way to die, to put somebody to death. Jesus was beaten his body. He was beat by the religious leaders. He was beat by the Roman soldiers. And listen, they didn't just slap him around. Isaiah says that they pulled out the beard. They put a crown of thorns on his head, pounded it on his head. The Jordan thorns that you can see today in Jerusalem, about two, three inches long and sharp as razors, and it would lacerate his scalp. They put a cat of nine tails on him, on his back, scourging him. It would just rip the skin off his back. He was reduced to raw hamburger. When he stood before the crowd, it was Pontius Pilate that said, Behold the man, look at him, look what they've done to him. He's unrecognizable. And then he would take the cross and he was pinned to that Roman gibbet. And death on the cross was by suffocation. It was every bone that Psalm 22 tells us that was out of joint, how painful that is. And, and the air would be squeezed out of your lungs, and the only way to get a breath of air is to push on the nails in your feet, which would shoot pain throughout your body, and get a breath, and then he would collapse once again. And it was a slow death, as I said, and oftentimes that... that, that people that were crucified would be on the cross for one, two days, sometimes even longer. Jesus was on the cross, what, for six hours? He died it for you. And Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2 tells us, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. He didn't think, well, I guess I'll die for that miserable person, Jeff. It was for joy. And it would give him joy to die for you as well. And it would give him joy to do the will of the Father. He prayed in, in the garden, the great agony, sweating drops of, of blood. And he said, Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. That's a very important prayer because Jesus was saying, if it is possible, if what is possible, if there's any way that a man or a woman could be saved by being righteous, being holy enough, being good enough, believing in another religion, believing in another religious leader or God, if there's any other way, then I don't need to take on this cup of suffering and death. If it is possible. But nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. And then it was a short time later, later that night, when they came to arrest him. And Peter's there swinging that sword around. Peter put it away. Don't you know, Peter, I'm going to take on the cup of suffering and death that the Father has given to me. I am going to die 
for you, Peter, for sinful humanity. And the next day he did take that cross. And he went to that place of execution with you on his mind and on his heart. Because he esteemed you, proved his love for you, and he died for you. May that never lose its impact. And he knew that you would be here on this March morning, 2023. And he says, I delight in you, and I love you. And I died for you. May that never lose an impact in our hearts and daily. And therefore God also has highly exalted him, verse 9, given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow, and those in heaven and those on earth and those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus humbled himself, becoming a man, a, a bondservant, obedient to the death of the cross, the humble Christ. He didn't stay on the cross. He would cry out, it is finished, and then he breathed his last. He bowed his head. He would put, be put into a tomb that had never been used, that was owned by a man, Joseph of Arimathea. But he only borrowed the tomb because he resurrected after three days. And he's alive today, sitting at the right hand of God. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despised the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. He is the one that we worship. And it is the name of Jesus that is every that is above every name that includes any religious leader that has ever come on the scene. His name is above Muhammad, Confucius, Buddha, the Pope, whoever it is. He has been highly exalted. It means in the Greek to be exalted with all exhortation and all in the heavens and on earth and under the earth will be in subjection and submission to him. And that is what's being talked about in verses 10 and 11. These verses do not talk about universal salvation. But every knee will eventually acknowledge and bow to Jesus, to him for who he really is whether it's the angelic hosts in the heavens, and I believe that's what's being referred to, those in heaven. And, and by the way, a little side note, because this came up yesterday. Somebody uh, emailed me and said, there's all these reports coming out about UFOs and aliens and more reports, and the government's covering it up and all of this, and I watch this YouTube. And I personally don't believe there's intelligent beings out there. We're the crowning jewel of his creation. So I personally don't think that there is. But if there were, so what? Because everyone in heaven will bow the knee. He is the king of all the universe. They will bow to him. I don't think there is. The Bible doesn't speak of it. Don't get all caught up in it where you're watching hours of YouTubes and that the world is flat and all of this. Okay? Read your Bibles. But that's something that we're going to probably hear more about in these last days. That could be something that you get in a conversation with somebody. Every knee in heaven and on the earth and under the earth, that is those of the unrighteous dead, will stand before the great white throne judgment. And the question for everyone 
is where we bow the knee freely in reverence and acknowledgement and submission to the Lord. I know that a vast majority of people have done that coming through the services because you have come to him and recognized that he is the Lord and I need forgiveness and I come to you as I am for forgiveness and salvation and for a living hope. That's what we sang this morning, isn't it? We didn't sing, it's a dead hope. It's a living hope. But listen, those who reject him as their Lord will be forced and will have to recognize and bow the knee to acknowledge that he is Lord. And that will take place at the great white throne judgment. There will be those that will say to you and to me, when I stand before God, I'm going to tell him a thing or two. And listen, when somebody says that, you can dialogue with them. Because sometimes they'll say that because they're hurting. They're going through a loss in life. They're going through pain in life. They don't understand. Why did God allow this to happen? Why did this person die? Why did this circumstance take place? And we can talk to them. They don't know about the goodness of God and the compassion of God and the provision of God. But listen, there's going to be none of this. I'm going to tell God off. And those who have rejected him of the King of kings and the Lord of all lords, that one day they will bow the knee to acknowledge that he is truly who he is. But at that point, it will be too late. If you are here today and you have not submitted to Jesus Christ, he loves you, he's provided forgiveness for you, he cares about you, he esteemed you, he delights in you, and he came to give you a living hope. We live in a fallen world where there's sin and there's disease and we see it all around us and none of us are exempt from it. Jesus said, you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer for I've overcome the world. He left us with hope. He provided hope. He didn't leave us not with any hope. And we need to give that message of hope to others. That there is hope and Jesus came to this world and died for you. And if you don't come to Jesus Christ, when you breathe your last and close your eyes, it'll be too late. People ask me all the time, are there second chances? Is there a purgatory? No. It's appointed once for man to die, then the judgment. It'll be too late. It'll be too late. And hell is real. And Jesus spoke of it. And the lake of fire and eternity separated from God. And I read Luke chapter 16 of those in Haiti. And there's the rich man. He's calling over to Abraham. He says, can you send Lazarus over? I'm in torment. Can you have him dip his finger in cool water and touch my tongue? And I can't imagine going through all eternity being thirsty. But it is real. And that's why there's an urgency to give the gospel, to care about others, to give them the message of hope, of good news. As I read verses 9 through 11, I cannot for the life of me understand how anyone who calls himself a teacher of the word or a pastor or a preacher can suggest there are other ways to heaven. But yet we see that more and more in the church, the church at large today. Don't believe it. 
Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. So why should we empty ourselves and humble ourselves and become a servant? Because it's the mind of Christ. It is the way of Christ. It would be Jesus that said, if you want to be the greatest in the kingdom of God, then be the servant of all. Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 5, Therefore humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that you, he may exalt you in due time. Speaking of being a servant, we like to use that term. Uh, I'm, I, you know, I'm a servant of the Lord. I'm a servant of the Lord. I, I want to see it. That includes me. Are we really a servant of the Lord? To go to him and say, Lord, what does it mean? A servant, servant does not live in selfish ambition. They don't live to be seen or noticed or exalted, not out of conceit or pride. In Paul's day, the quality of a good servant was one that was there about the master's business, in the background, not getting attention, serving in humility. Paul would refer himself as a bondservant of Jesus Christ that I'm going to serve him all my life. And he laid down his life for the Christians and for the gospel. So the pattern that Paul the Apostle followed in his life was being humbled, becoming a servant. Lord, my, my life is yours. It's not my own. I'm a bondservant of Jesus Christ. To the, the Corinthians, he would say, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Lord, I want to be that servant. I want to know what it means to be that servant. You gave the ultimate example. And then as we close this morning in verse 12, Therefore, because of all that, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Paul continuing to exhort the Philippian believers. He, he's returning to the exhortations which he began earlier in the chapter. Hey, I want you to have spiritual harmony and unity. So let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in loneliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself, looking out not only for your own interests, but the interests of others. And, and verse 8, and, and now, uh, as we saw the example of Jesus, of that, now I want you to obey verse 12. You've always obeyed. When you've heard the preaching of the word of God, you've responded to it. You've taken it to heart. What, what a great thing to be said of a church, of a group of people. That is something that the Lord desires for us here at Calvary Chapel. To take it to heart. Let's apply it to our lives, to this church body. What we have read so far in chapter 2, obey God's word. And then Paul writes something interesting here. He says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now, what does that mean? Some Christians have read this. They've been confused. Does this mean I have to work for my salvation? No, you can't work for your salvation. It is a gift. He did not say work for your salvation. He said work out your salvation. There's a big difference. I'm working out. My salvation, I'm working out salvation. It means it has the idea of bringing to completion, to a conclusion. In other words, give some real thought to what you are doing. Don't let selfish ambition, as we keep it in context, strife, division, stop what God is doing in your midst. But rather work it out. And as you do, then working to completion should mean that you're becoming more like Jesus. You're following the ultimate example 
desiring to, becoming that servant. You're looking at others' interests, not your own interests. To work out your own salvation means to put real effort into your Christian life. Again, Paul is not saying work for your salvation in a sense of accomplishing it and do it with terror, you know, fear and trembling. That is, do I really have to be worried if I'm good enough to be saved? No, but rather Paul is telling us since you are saved, because we're saved by grace through faith. And since you have salvation because of your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, may it be evident in every area of your life. And to do it with fear and trembling means I'm taking it seriously. We don't talk a lot about the fear of the Lord in the church today. Some people think that fear of the Lord is this unhealthy terror of God. No, it doesn't. It means I reverence God. I want to please God with my life. I want to do that on a daily basis. And I know that it is the work of the Holy Spirit. As you look at verse 12, Paul here having a heart of tenderness, he says, you know, beloved, my beloved, be obedient. You've responded to the word of God before, not just when I was there, but in my absence. So continue to obey the things that I've told you. Don't continue in this conflict that is in the church. Don't continue in pride or conceit or selfish ambition. Don't just look out for your own interests. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. So don't miss the connection between the obedience that Jesus showed in verse 8 and the obedience that Paul expects the believers to live in verse 12. And it won't just be you striving and straining in the flesh, but as we read in verse 13, for it is God who works in you both to will and to do of his good pleasures. Verse 12 is a lot of us. Verse 13 is a lot of God. We'll pick it up there next week. You don't want to miss it. And I'm very grateful that he's willing to work this into our lives. Because naturally, I'm not a humble person. Naturally, I can be selfish. I need God's help in this. And Father, we do come and we ask that you would, Lord, do this work in us. Help us to be obedient. We belong to you. We thank you that Jesus considered us personally. That he came to this world to die for us took on the appearance of a man, the form of a man, it took on being a bondservant, and he went to the cross because of his love for us and he esteems us. So Lord, we will never be perfect on this side of eternity. We will never even come close to being perfect like Jesus. You will bring us to Completion when we go home to be with you. Glorified state, but Lord, we are flawed. And we need you. And may our desire be, Lord, to help me to be other-centered, to die to self. May the desire of us be not to move forward in our lives being selfish and it's all about us, but Lord, to look at the interests, not only our own interests, but the interests of others and living in a way that pleases you. 
And Father, I do pray this morning, if there is anyone here that is at this service or is watching or perhaps listening on the radio later, that you've never submitted to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. He came to die for your sins because of his love for you when we're all sinners. And the good news of the gospel is that Jesus came and provide forgiveness of sin and eternal life and right relationship with the Father. Listen, the wages of sin is death. You can't save yourself. It's only coming in faith, repenting. Repent and turn to Jesus. Turn direction. Repent of your sins. Repent of trying to do things yourself. Be good enough and turn to Jesus who did the work on the cross and make an atonement for your sins and come in submission and yielding to his lordship and calling out on the name of the Lord to be forgiven. You can do that right now. Today is the day of salvation because he is king of kings. He is Lord of lords. He's the creator. He is God. Came in human flesh because of his love for you and died for you. And he conquered sin and death. He proved he's the son of God. You can come right now and say, Jesus, I come to you humbly in recognition of my need to be forgiven. A sinner, forgive me. I believe you died on that cross for me and you rose again. And I ask that you would be my Lord and Savior. I bow the knee to you, my heart to you right now. And I thank you for hearing my prayer and saving me and bringing me into the family of God in this new beginning. And I do desire to know you and walk with you all the days of my life. In Jesus' name. And I just pray for all of us that we will leave this place at all of the wondrous cross to be able to share it with others. Bless everyone here as we go our way. In Jesus' name. Thank you.